For God so loved the world that he wrote a book that it was his undertaking to, over centuries, to write a book that we call the Bible and protect it, make sure that it says nothing but truth, give it to us and have the Holy Spirit guide us to understand it. If you came in today and you didn't know the rule and you didn't get one of these papers, in your, would you just raise your hand? One of our members is going to give you theirs because we're going to stand in, in an act of great reverence. We're going to read part of God's Word together. Everybody got one? Let's stand together and read. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Thank you. You be seated and find in your own Bible the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 will reference several places as we go along today. It was the Bible that Jesus read. We forget this sometimes, the Old Testament. These are the stories that he learned in vacation Bible school. These are the heroes and the history that shaped the Lord's soul for his life of a service to God. It is a typical book, the Old Testament. That's what the scholars say. That means it's filled with types and patterns that we will see fulfilled. We will see them more clearly when we get to the New Testament age. But they are already there even in the early stages of his revelation of himself. Like a great artist, God is dropping hints early about where this eventually will go and what we will eventually see clearly in Christ. Naaman himself is a type. He is an example to all of us of the way that God still still deals with all humans. God has not changed. He doesn't change. And so his essential relationship with humans is the same now as it has always been. His relationship to them is guided by the same principles, and Naaman is a type of that. In the Naaman story, we see the sickness of sin. The sickness of sin. Leprosy in the Bible is almost always a symbol of sin. When you got leprosy in the Old Testament, you didn't go to a doctor. You went to a priest. And that was an indication of what it was symbolizing. Just like sin, this skin disease is small at the start. It's a scab or a bright spot on the skin. It doesn't seem very alarming. What you don't know is that this blood-borne disease is gradually going to disfigure you and destroy you 
And one of the ways it's going to do that is going to numb you to true feelings. Just like sin, it enters into your life, gradually, invisibly begins to destroy what God intended you to be. Churches in our day, and us no different, have a decision to make whether we will preach this doctrine. It's not a very popular doctrine. That people are sick with sin. That all of us have the same, at some level, resistance to the life and the will of a holy God. And that we carry out that rebellion at a thousand different levels. In our sexuality, in our ability to be honest, in our attendance at worship. We, somehow the battle is raging in all of us. And so in Naaman we see how sick we truly are with sin. But Naaman also shows us the searching spirit. God is actively involved with all the people on this planet this morning, not just Christians. He's the, there's just one God, and the creator of all people is that same God, and he knows each of them by name, and he knows their story, and he's actively involved in their life, every one of them. Second uh, Chronicles says, The eye of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Now, I want you to make that picture in your mind that this morning, the eyes of God search over the whole earth Africa, Central America, Australia, Asia, Europe, America. He searches like some searching spotlight for people whose hearts have turned toward him, and he will give them his support on the basis of Jesus Christ. Now, Naaman is a, is a Gentile. He's a Syrian. Um, same essential geography as Syria that we know right now. He's a valiant, successful, and influential leader. Look at verse 1 of our story today. Verse 1, now Naaman, the captain of the army of the king of Aram, Syria, was a great man with his master. He was highly respected. And watch this, because the Lord, Jehovah, had given victory to Aram. So in some fuzzy way, he was not a complete stranger to the work of Jehovah. Jehovah had been working in his life, helping him for some years. You can see it in his tenderness, his attitude, his humility. You see some he reminds me of Cornelius in Acts 10. I hope you'll write that down and study it later today. That's the Roman centurion who is so interested in the God of Israel. He's already giving alms and he's praying. He's, he doesn't know God yet, but he is hungry. He is searching out who God is. He, as Jesus will say in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're still lost, but they are hungry. They've got their, they're on a search for an answer. All of that is evidence of God's work in Naaman's life. And the other evidence is that when a Hebrew girl gives testimony to him about the Jehovah and the power that Jehovah exercises through a prophet in Israel. He does not ignore it. He, you and I can witness to ten people, and maybe nine of them don't think another thing about it. They go home to their internet or their Spurs game or something else. They, it just never impacts their life. But one of those ten or 
one, thankfully, even maybe more, he, he heard you. There, there, there's a, a, a preparation of his heart, as Jesus would say, he is white to harvest. I've been working in his heart already. And he's ready. So this little slave girl gives testimony, and Naaman's wife tells Naaman, Naaman tells the king, the king says, you ought to go there. And so he's on this desperate search for truth and meaning in his life. There's follow-up and energy. Now, whether that's the Samaritan woman in the Gospels or the three wise men in the Christmas story, very often outsiders are more interested in our gospel than we are. We've grown, we've, we take it for granted. We've, that old thing, we've known it so long that we forget the power of what is being said here. The, the, the narrative of this story is that the God who made you and watched you ruin your life in sin is now chasing you down and calling you back to himself. So this outsider, this uh, Gentile is very sensitive to that story. Um, so Naaman is a, a type of that searching spirit who's looking this morning for people who will worship him in the spirit. Naaman is also a type of the word of witness of the power of it. Thank God for this young Jewish girl in verse 3. She says to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him. Um, rather than being heartbroken by her circumstances, rather than being bitter at God and filled with questions, this little girl has gotten past all that. She is still a slave. She still has a terrible circumstances that are governing her life, but she has moved past that like a palm tree. Her her She's upright again. Her eyes are on the Lord. She still believes. She still speaks to others about the goodness of God. Romans 10 says, How will they believe in whom they have not heard? How will this generation of Americans hear and believe in a God if they never hear you talk about him? Uh, you know, this is a very different God than culturally we expect to find. He has very different attitudes and uh, is a fierce holiness, a, a, a love that's expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a very different God. Well, how will they ever know about him if Christians don't carry that message? And how will Christians carry the message if we are so high-centered in our own grief? If life is still so much about us and how unfair it's all been and how hard it's all been, if, we, if nobody ever recovers our foundation to speak well, of our great God, even in the midst of suffering, the world will never hear. At Henry Talbot's funeral this past weekend, we sang, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But I just want to tell you this morning, it's worth it all now. It's not going to be worth it all. It is worth it now for you to go ahead and deal with the heartbreaks of your life and look straight up into a God who promises to be your savior and get past that and get all the way home to him. But even for the spiritually open man, the problem is pride. And that's the fourth New Testament truth that we see in this Old Testament story. If all men are sinners and everybody in here has the virus, everybody in here has that part of you that fights against God's will as it comes to you. The first effect of it will be an intense, the first expression of that sinful condition will be an intense loyalty to yourself, an intense loyalty to self. 
Uh, part of that will be arrogance. You think you can buy God's attention or achieve what you need. So Naaman in verse 9, Naaman in verse 9, he came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. Pretty impressive, pretty impressive. Uh, but everybody looks the same to God. I'm going to say that again. Everybody looks the same to God. There are no rich people and there are no poor people. Everybody is the same to him. They all, the narrative of God as he views the human race is of our great sin. And so he's not impressed with his armies. He's not impressed with his money. And um, he sees the illness, the thing that has to be cured. And part of our pride shows up in our expectation that somehow this God would act in accordance with our thoughts. That somehow I ought to be consulted here. Somehow that we ought to all be in on deciding how this thing goes. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Elijah sends word. And he's, he's really clearly communicating to this guy. This is nothing about me. There's no magic here. This is not me. This is your encounter with the great God. And by the way... That's what happens in a preaching service like this when people get saved. All of a sudden, it telescopes down and says, if the preacher disappears and you are being dealt with by God through those words. So Elijah says, I don't need to come out. I'm just telling you to go wash seven times in the Jordan. And it insulted him. Uh, why not the rivers of Damascus, he says, out of nationalistic pride. We whipped you guys in the last three wars. Why in the world would I use a Jewish river? Because, Naaman, God has chosen to reveal salvation through Israel. Uh, there's no subtle answer here because this is God's choice. Through Israel are going to come the prophets. Through Israel are going to come the Messiah. And you can say, I would like it some other way, but good luck with that. This great God has made a decision in heaven as the way salvation is going to come and be offered into the world. And it's through Israel and the prophets and then his dear son. But if that was an insult to the nation, it was also an insult to his logic. He said... I thought you'd come out of here and wave your hand and say hocus pocus. I know a little bit about magic. I want a show here. And none of that's happening and I'm not going to be a part of it. He was furious. Anybody ever been there? Where God led you and the direction he led you is not what you wanted? As a matter of fact, it was not anything like you wanted. Uh, it wasn't big, it wasn't heroic, it didn't give you control, it didn't make something much of you. As a matter of fact, it was the still, small voice of the Spirit calling you to himself by faith. And he was furious. I hope the church will always make people angry rather than pander to their opinions. The gospel is not marketed. It's declared. It's revealed from heaven. And so the fact that some people get angry is actually a good sign. It means it's cutting to the quick. It's getting to the place where I get it. This has now become a contest between me and the great God. 
You can say whatever you want about the preaching. You can say whatever you want about the church. You can find fault and you can find flaws. But at the end of the day, you've got to deal with the God who made you through, even imperfectly, has preached his gospel to you through the scripture and through that preacher. At the end of the day, you've got to deal with him. And it is getting close, and he comes up swinging. Thank God for the counselors who help him see, and thank God he's humble enough to listen to his counselors. They say to him, Father, friend, if he'd asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. Why don't you do something if he says if it's easy? Um, if he's going to be your God, shouldn't you let him be God? Everybody, if he's going to be God, shouldn't you let him say what he wants to say and you receive it in simple faith? You can't be telling him what to do. You can't be telling him how this is going to go. You say to him, thank God that you touched my heart and softened my heart to hear your word and I will do what you're asking me to do. Um, there it is. That New Testament truth, humble yourself, he'll lift you up. Strip down that wall of pride and arrogance and self-regard and self-control, all the things you've decided you're going to do with your life. Strip away those ambitions and what you say is your goal. Lay yourself before the Lord and say, what would you have me do? And he will lift you up. And the first expression as we read it is stop criticizing your brothers. Humble yourself and stop it. See, if the first expression of pride is that you always know what, what's right, the second expression of pride is you always think everybody else doesn't know what's right. And you liberally apply that. And so rather than listening to the Lord and doing what he says, you just take it your business, make everybody else better. The reason you're not saved this morning has nothing to do with sin, not now. The reason you're not saved is because you're stubborn. You, if you want life on your own terms, good luck. You want life under the gracious hand of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you come to him with no conditions. You say, I'll do it your way. Well, Naaman is also a type or a, of the danger of drift. Like so many Old Testament stories, there's a warning to people who already know God but have begun to drift away whether they know it or not. Gehazi is the servant to Elijah, and no doubt he's a believer. He's believed in Jehovah. He's gone to Sunday school his whole life. He's got little pins to show how often he went. He went to VBS. He knows these stories, but gradually his heart began to drift away from this tender God. He hated Arameans, Syrians. He despised them. He thought, we ought to take as much money as we can from them. He began to hunger for wealth, and he was willing to lie to get it. And none of that sends off a shockwave in his life. Nothing alarms him. Nothing about what I just said, his, his love for money, his ability to lie, his hate for Arameans, nothing sets him off. Um, who was it that said, you know you've created an idol when the God you worship hates all the same people you do? Um, he hated these people, but nothing said to him, 
Isn't that a trouble? Isn't that a danger, Gehazi? So they leave. He goes after him. He tells a lie. He says, we just had some people come. They need a little money. Could I have some money? And he gets back and um, Elisha says, where'd you go, my brother? And it's just like God in Eden. Where are you? Where are you? It's, it's a self-diagnostic question. Where are you? If, if you sing about joy, is there joy? If you sing about peace, is there peace? If you want a holy God, is there holiness? Is there power? Is there the filling of the Holy Spirit? If not, then that is an issue. It ought to say, I need to be on my knees. Something is wrong. But never did with Gehazi. He just kind of drifted, went after the money. And it's the end of this story. Here's the great flip. The Gentile has Gehazi's heart. And Gehazi has the Gentile's leprosy. Don't you fool yourself, everybody. You sow, God is not going to be mocked. You sow to the, to the flesh, you'll reap of the flesh. You can cover it up with Christian stuff. You can go to church three times a week. You can memorize verses. But if your heart drifts toward the world, if you want what the world wants, you'll reap what the world's going to get. It's all in your heart. And nobody can monitor that but you. And every alarm bell ought to signal you. Every, do I love the Lord? Am I clear with him? Do I pray with passion? Do I bear fruit for him? These are not my rules. These are the rules of a great God that govern your life. And so it's a symbol of drifting believers. Do you want to build a church? Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? Do you want to live a life of witness and of service to Christ? Are you hungry this morning for a supernatural life? Are you willing to humble your pride and let life be what God wants it to be? Are you, are you hungry for that? And if not, isn't that a problem? For a thousand years, a great God has been dealing with men and the rules are the same now as they ever were. He never has had different rules. This is the way he deals with men. And by his great grace, he wrote this story and then will use it in our hearts to humble us that we might be lifted up. This is his promise. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the most humble man we ever saw. You, having so much in terms of power and ability, it all was laid aside that you might perceive and do your Father's will in childlike faith. You truly were his son. And now you have given us your spirit, your righteousness, and ask only that we continue that long pattern, that we humble ourselves, that we do what you want us to do rather than what we want. Forgive us for trying to take the gospel and making it about our success or our safety or our control or our credit. Forgive. Come now and show men the way of salvation. Show them a path that you will validate, you will authenticate by your own power. We pray.